0: Block Talk Radio. Uh-oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie.
1: Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it guess. is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? woo <laughs> Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump
2: day. Woo-hoo!
3: This is Tom Donaldson, Donaldson Files, here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. On uh, tonight's show, we've got Kevin Roche. We're going to talk about the coronavirus. Uh, Dr. Larry's going to join us. And then... And Dr. Larry and I will continue for the resistance hour with Swamp Girl Pam calling in, and we're going to make some observations on what's going on uh, with Wisconsin, you know, what it means, and uh, go from there. And then, uh, you know, then at the end of the, sh- the second hour, the resistance hour, Dr. Larry will be reading an essay that he's done dealing with Thanksgiving. So welcome to the show, Kevin. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. All right, uh the, the, I guess the first question I'm going to ask you here is, you know, kind of review where we are and the coronavirus as you see it.
4: Uh, you mean for the epidemic overall?
3: Yeah, the, the pandemic think... overall. If somebody if somebody said to you, where are we at, where should we go from here? <laughs> or should we just yeah, simply say I... wave, the white, wave the white flag and declare victory?
4: <laughs> yeah I might say that uh you know if I were that good at predicting i I would probably make a lot more money in the stock market i i I think um so a couple of things are definitely true at this point. One is that we have a lot of people who've been infected and who therefore have some adaptive immunity. We also have a lot of people who've been vaccinated and who therefore have some vaccine derived adaptive immunity. So between those two groups, we probably have a large enough uh, set of people vaccinated that we really should not see huge additional case waves. We are still seeing, as we saw last year, what appear to be waves in different geographies that I I can only assume are at least partly driven by meteorological conditions. Uh, Temperature, relative humidity, amount of sunlight. The research isn't completely clear, but we're seeing a lot of the same kind of patterns that we've seen before. In Minnesota, for example, we've been having a case wave. Um, Kind of unclear right now by the indicators that I track whether that Case waves have peaked or not. It looked actually um, two or three weeks ago, like it probably had reversed and uh, started to head down and then it headed back up. so i'm I'm reluctant right now to kind of say well we're we're at the top. This time last year was pretty much exactly when we hit the top in cases in what has been our biggest wave to date, the one we had late last fall um, and early winter. But I I am hopeful that we actually are far enough along in the process of getting uh, enough people with some kind of immunity that we really should see a significant slowing but as I always caution people, I, I do not believe we can eliminate the virus. Um, it's not going to go away, so we're always going to have some cases, and we're going to have some people who get seriously ill and die.
3: Well, let me, let me kind of follow up on that point because what you're, you know, what you're uh, saying is the same. We've been doing this with influenza now, you know, for you no. Know, you know, almost like I say, you know, for decades, if not centuries. So this is, you know, we've learned to live with those viruses. And it sounds like to me this will be very similar to what we have on, uh, with an influenza. We'll have a uh season. But I do have one question. Is the coronavirus replacing
4: influenza,
3: or are we just not simply looking for influenza, and therefore we're not diagnosing it?
4: yeah i think I think it's a very good question in in terms of deaths and serious disease, it appears to have definitely displaced influenza thus far uh as they were last year. People are expressing concerns that we'll see a an influenza rebound this year. Last year, we didn't see one at all in the winter um this year uh there are some early signs that we might I I suspect that what we will see going forward, say, a couple of years from now, is that in the seasons when influenza tends to be active, we'll now see a combination of influenza and coronavirus instead of purely influenza. But I suspect the total number of cases will be relatively the same. Okay. Well,
3: let me... Here's the other aspect that comes into play, this uh there was a study done in the VA. You know, a while you know, just recently where they basically said, Okay, half of the cases we're seeing are cases with COVID. They're not necessarily COVID patients, but they're they've been diagnosed with COVID. They came in for other reasons. Is there a possibility that this when we look at deaths, we're looking at a similar statistic, maybe a lower statistic or a similar statistic or literally over the past year and a half we are counting you know with covid along with those who died because of covid you know what's the percentage of each and how does that influence public policy if we're getting that wrong
4: yeah i again an excellent question um there is no question that the way we have tested for and attributed events to coronavirus is drastically different than what we historically do with influenza, for example. And because of that, we are providing ammunition for people who want to kind of spread, uh, fear, anxiety in the population. We, we, if, if we tested flu and influenza in the same way, I, I think we'd have huge numbers of cases and the appearance of huge numbers of hospitalizations and deaths, just like we do with coronavirus. Um, I, I think that the research definitely indicates that in addition to that issue, that we are basically treating anybody who has a positive test in some period of time before a hospitalization, or before a death as though the coronavirus is what caused that and i i just think on close inspection we see repeatedly that a large number of those events are not actually due to the virus and i and i think it's important for people to be aware of that
3: well that's because here's the here's the problem i have with the, because here's the thing if we're looking like anywhere between twenty-five to fifty percent people with COVID, not because of dying of COVID. We're really looking at the number of deaths, four hundred to about six hundred thousand. That's a big difference versus, let's say, close to eight hundred thousand. And <laughs> yeah, and it seems to me that while and that's still a lot of number, by the way. That's nothing to sneeze at. Four hundred or uh, six hundred thousand would still be a significant amount of deaths, in my view. But certainly. It would be a lower number concerning over a 20-month period, and we're basing policy on this stuff. If we're not getting the right data, we're going to get the wrong wrong policy.
4: Yeah, my concern at this point continues to be that um, people are overlooking, underestimating the amount of damage we've done um, with the policy responses to the epidemic damage to um, children's health and education, damage to the general public health, which we're seeing increasing signs of, damage to our um, public finances. Um, So I I am concerned that any kind of extensive, uh, ongoing numbers of hospitalizations and deaths that are attributed to coronavirus will be used to justify um, continuing measures that are, are doing an enormous amount of damage to the country and that we need to eliminate as, as soon as we can.
3: Now this is Tom Dalton, Dalton Biles, and Biles Dr. Larry and Kevin Roche of Healthy Skeptic. We'll be right back here.
2: A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent, 1 in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR, 1 in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year, 1 in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, 1 in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.
3: Well, back to the Donaldson Files and the Bachelor News Radio Network. You, you can listen to a repeat of this show every day, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. on the bachelornews.airtime.pro and the Bachelor News Radio Network, the bachelornews.airtime.pro. And we're going to back to our guest, uh, Kevin Roche. Uh, hi, okay, Kevin. Give me the strengths and the weaknesses of the of the vaccine. I know that's a big question, but.
4: Yeah. Um, so, first of all, I want to be really clear because I know, um, you know, I've uh, written a lot of stuff on breakthrough um, events and what they tell us about the vaccines, and I'm always very careful to caution people. I am not in any way anti-vax. I'm fully vaccinated and I have my booster Um, I always tell people, you know, talk to your doctor, but in general, I think for most people, it's pretty prudent um, to get vaccinated. At the same time, I think the vaccines were initially oversold and are continuing to be oversold as a solution to the epidemic. If you look at the history of respiratory virus vaccines, Um, You you wouldn't be very encouraged, and we're all familiar with the influenza vaccine, which um, doesn't actually limit transmission uh, very often, may um, prevent uh, serious illness, but um, just doesn't have overwhelming effectiveness, and there are a number of other respiratory viruses for which people really haven't been able to develop um, effective vaccines at all, RSV, which seriously affects children, being an example of that. So in some ways, these are actually pretty um, uh, remarkably effective vaccines. Um, It's turning out that after a few months, they do not seem to prevent transmission very well. It's unclear at this point whether boosters will really make a difference, just like we had to wait several months to notice that the effectiveness of the original doses was lessening. We we need to give time to see if the boosters are more effective. Um, At the same time, it's pretty clear that the vaccines continue to have good effectiveness at limiting hospitalization and uh, death. And that's true even in the older groups, although it lessens some, we we're finally able to get a data file out of the state of Minnesota, which allowed us to calculate case rates um, over the same uh, period of time for people who were vaccinated and people who were unvaccinated. And when you look at that, you see that for most age groups, uh, the risk of death is three to four times greater if you become infected and you're not vaccinated than if you're vaccinated. And in terms of hospitalization, you're roughly um, twice as likely to be hospitalized. Uh, so that's, that's an indicator that they work pretty well. Um, I also think they're, they're safe. Um, there is a lot of garbage floating around on the internet that really concerns me about the safety of the vaccines. The reality is that um, just about every significant real piece of research shows that that they are pretty safe. Now, having said that, um, if you're a young male in particular, your risk of serious illness from the virus is, is very, very low. And there is a risk of myocarditis, which is heart inflammation, that is not insignificant in those younger male populations uh so it's kind of a different risk uh benefit uh calculation in regard to vaccination for i think those younger males and for children in general
3: yeah.
0: okay, let but, me
4: but is, this go go ahead go ahead Larry,
0: yeah uh. Uh, isn't isn't I mean, it, it, it seems like that's pretty significant. I mean it, the whole picture is pretty pretty easy to uh, understand and pretty easy to uh, uh, work your public policy around. And um, so, what I'm hearing is that. Well, what I'm hearing is what pretty much what I guess I picked up anyway from from. Uh, you know the general messaging but but what but what I don't understand is is why there's so much controversy and why it's so uh I mean we've got people that are I just heard of an editorial on um uh the uh, oh see, you know it's one of one of the station the conservative stations and this guy was just absolutely uh tort he was ready to burn uh, uh, Antonio Fauci at the stake and and uh, he wanted to protect the children I and mean, why are they talking about getting uh, ex and, and in fact I uh, I he then paid a clip of uh, Fauci recommending that children from uh, one to five are getting very close to being uh, uh, being appropriate uh, targets for uh, vaccination, and then, in addition to that, they were talking about uh, vaccinating dogs and and pets. Um, what? Why are? Why is? I mean, that seems to me utterly ridiculous, and 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 it, it, the whole idea of vaccinating children seems to me, in, in view of the incidence or the danger of contracting the uh, virus. Uh, at least uh historically uh but why? why all this why all this hullabaloo why why can't people just why aren't they just saying what you just said
4: well i i think we we have historically had a a significant uh, proportion of people um who have been uh opposed to vaccinations in general um That group, I have to say, is extremely misinformed, um, but they're very uh, well organized. Um, They've done a lot of damage to children's health. We've seen measles outbreaks because of resistance um, to measles. Measles is a serious disease for, for children. So that has always been there. I think that's coupled with the fact that this is a different kind of vaccine. It is not the traditional live attenuated viral vaccine. Um, and I think that newness uh, has provided an opportunity for lots of misinformation uh, to be promulgated out there. And then I, I think that, um, you know, it's a mistake to, to mandate things and to try to punish people who don't do something. That only hardens up the resistance. So I think the government approach to kind of browbeating or even threatening people uh, around getting vaccinated has not helped. Um, It's probably uh, led to even stiffer resistance. And the reality is we live in a highly polarized era where everything takes on political kind of overtones, and I think, um, you know, vaccination has kind of fallen into that category as well. What I try to do is give people as much information as I can from the research uh, and studies that are done on the vaccines and on the effects of vaccination, so that people can kind of make their own decisions, talk to their Physicians, um, I, I just think people should be informed with good uh, data um, and be thoughtful about their um, about their decisions. So what I'm hearing,
0: what I'm hearing there is that you're you're implying that that the way the government's messaging has been going and their policies are really contributing to all this confusion.
4: I think think that's absolutely the case And I'll go way back to the start And I I posted a number of times on this Just when the vaccines Before the vaccines got approved When uh, public health officials and politicians Were saying, our governor included Were saying, you know, the vaccines are how we get out of this They will end this epidemic That was a crazy expectation to set again, especially with a respiratory virus vaccine. So that expectation set at the start, um, contributes in part to another thing people perceive, which is, Oh, wait a minute. Lots of people are now getting infected, even though they're fully vaccinated. You told me, you know, that it would basically end cases and that's not happening. Um, so yeah, I think the messaging has been really bad, and I think the tone, which is very threatening, uh, from from many of these officials, from the president on down. You know, you're talking, and, about, you're talking
0: and, about the uh, current administration yeah, on that one, yeah, yeah,
4: yeah, and you, you know the and a number of gov- governors, other people, you know, basically threatening people with their jobs, with their access to health care. That is not in my judgment, that is not a good way to persuade people to do something that you think is to their benefit and to the public benefit, and it's just not a good way to approach it yeah,
3: yeah okay can I yeah, that's a good point because you've made this point before because I mean, one of the other messages was, you know, get vaccinated and wear a mask. I remember you know, we went through that stage. Which, uh, and, I, yeah. and you made the same point then, you, got to, you know, that's really great marketing to help people get vaccinated and keep wearing the mask. Uh, maybe here's the question I'm going to throw back here, and maybe this one what bothers me in this whole thing. I'm, you know, like I say, I, I'm like you. I've been vaccinated. I've got the booster. I'm not. I'm opposed to the mandates because I think they're counterproductive, and I'm not all that convinced, for example, you know, having mandates, vaccine mandates for children. When you have a real risk versus benefit, as you stated, if you're a young a young male at the age of 15, while the incidence of myocarditis is still low, they're certainly higher with that group than any other, and their risk to getting a serious illness from coronavirus, you know, is the risk and benefit even matching up there with that particular age group. That's my view. What's your
4: thoughts? Uh, no, that's exactly the way I think. Look at it as well um and i've you know I wrote a couple of posts after I saw the f d a material uh that they used to approve the vaccines for younger children, um, you know, pointing out to parents that those trials were completely undersized um to adequately detect either safety issues or really to show any effectiveness um yeah and in in that age group, the risk of hospitalization and death, the true risk, if it's really purely for coronavirus treatment is is minuscule um, so correspondingly, for there to be any benefit to um you know encouraging children to be vaccinated uh the the risk would have to be basically non-existent and and I'm not sure
3: it is. Hold on to that thought. This time, Donaldson, Donaldson Files. And, uh, you know, Dr. Larry, I'll have you get ready to ask uh, a, a question, uh, Kevin, uh, shortly after this break. Here on the Donaldson Files with Dr. Larry and also Kevin Rochain. Don't forget tonight we have the Resistance Hour with the Swamp Girl, Dr. Larry, and myself. We're talking everything and anything, starting off what's going on in... Kenosha, Wisconsin, that court case. And we might even delve into the court case dealing with uh, the Arbally case down in Georgia. Uh.
1: You might know me on 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in degrees degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedinamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America.
2: I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots.
1: I am not have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is
4: exaggerating.
1: I can fight it naturally.
3: No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov.
4: A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.
3: Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're back here on the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network with Kevin McKay, along with uh, Dr. Lady Fiedera. We're talking the good updates for the coronavirus. And, and before we go any further, Kevin, why don't you tell everybody about your website and your background because you've got an extensive background. Uh, dealing with healthcare issues, and you got, in my view, one of the best, obliquely, websites. You know, healthy skeptic dealing with health issues in general, and the coronavirus in particular.
4: Uh, yeah, I've, I'm, I'm old. And I've worked in healthcare my whole life. I've actually worked in healthcare for fifty years, um, including as a nurse's aide to work my way through.
0: partisan issue to a large extent, and uh, it, that seems to me to be uh, extremely stupid, uh, because this should be a, uh, uh, should be, as they say, follow the science. Apparently nobody's following the science, at least in the policy department. Um, so, um, where, where? How, and and another factor that i've also come across in personal experience is it seems to me that every practitioner every every m d as opposed to a, a public health uh, uh expert uh they all seem to be against this this uh government approach to uh to uh you know requiring mandating uh uh, vaccinations or, or, uh, even, uh, even the, uh, the, uh, the various, uh, facial, uh, protections that, uh, that, that are all around us and so on. And and then there's, there's also the big question of when the schools, uh, open up, are they supposed to have these little plastic carols and, and, and there's a lot of expense and, and that sort of thing. Um, uh, I mean, it really gets into a, a whole series of, of issues, and uh, yeah, I'm just wondering: um, Is it? Is do you have do You what's your what's your, what's your? I, I I know you're you're fighting it in a sense by your uh, by your blog and your uh, radio appearances and so on. But is, is there some way that that how, how, I'm I'm really confused about how to go about tackling such a such a stupid thing. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just it's just so unscientific that it's that it's stupid. Um, so anyway, I guess I, I guess what the bottom line is: uh, what kind of advice do you have to us uh, people that are not basically in the medical field, and uh, we, we are I guess we're in the communication field to some extent.
4: Yeah, I, you know, I think the reality is at a kind of basic level, um, people are speaking and giving their views because we all observe, I certainly observe, you know, people are out and about much more. Most people are not wearing masks in places where they don't have to. People are, you know, going about their activities um, more like they were before. So I think people, you know, people are attributing that to epidemic fatigue, but I don't think it's that as much as people's awareness that for most people, this really isn't that dangerous and also that the trade-offs they make in their personal life, what they've given up and what they've sacrificed has a high value and, and they simply don't want to do that anymore. I think that those set of actions by the public influences the the politicians more than we may realize. And uh, our governor here is a perfect example. You know, he's, uh, you know, no matter how much kind of misinformation he spreads at the same time, he's made it clear he won't declare any more emergencies and he won't, um, you know, recommend any more kind of lockdowns or anything. And that's because I think he knows that the public's fed up with that stuff and, and tired of it and doesn't, want it anymore so to some extent i think the mass of people are kind of leading by their actions i think we need to get it will be good for the public to have as we've seen some european countries do kind of a formal declaration that we're done with any kind of restrictions and that from here on out, this is going to be just another disease that crops up and that we have to deal with, but we're not asking people to endure these extraordinary disruptions uh, to their lives. It's unfortunate that because the government has control over most of the schools, they are able to use that um, to affect Children in very negative Ways and that's exacerbated In most states by the power of The teachers unions who As at least in Minnesota Are the single biggest um, Donor to political Campaigns all for one party Uh, And So I, I what I Am most concerned about is how Quickly we can Stop doing damage to children By any kinds of restrictions You know whether it's On in-person schooling, whether it's telling them they have to wear masks or be distanced or any of this nonsense, there's no basis for that. But again, unfortunately, because it's largely controlled by the government, they can kind of hold on to that area longer than they probably can some other areas. But I, I I think there is an awareness among the political class that, in general, people are pretty much over this and would like to see us return to more of a normal uh, situation, whatever that is.
0: But that, oh, yeah. that today in today's world, that, that's a partisan position. I mean, uh, you know, you've got uh, you've got the uh, Florida situation compared to, say, uh, New Jersey. Uh, both you know and they're all sort of either falling in line with the uh Washington Democrats or or they uh Republicans and they're fo- fo- it just seems like that shouldn't be a
4: partisan I i stri- <laughs> i don't think it's as monolithic as as it may once have been y- you may recall that there was a lot of speculation that the governor of New Jersey upon his re-election was actually going to re-promulgate a statewide mask mandate and, and put other restrictions in place because there was some case rise in New Jersey. But after his re-election, which turned out to be a lot closer than he and others anticipated, uh, he made it clear that he was not going to do that. So I think he got the message. I was really encouraged to see the governor of Colorado, who's a progressive Democrat, um, was asked – uh, Colorado is having a very significant case wave. I think it's actually rolled over at this point. But um, he was asked if he was going to put a mask mandate back in place. And he said, you know what? Uh, New Mexico has a mask mandate, and they have as many or more cases than we do. So it looks to me like they don't work. To to hear that come out of a, uh, a Democratic governor's mouth is, is pretty – Surprising. So it's not universal, but I do think there are an increasing number of Democrats, even, who kind of recognize people are done with this and they need to figure out a way uh, to, to get past it. Um, so so I, I, I think more of a consensus may be emerging than is apparent uh, on the surface.
3: Let me get, yeah, let me ask, the, I'm going to kind of follow up and go in a different direction here. Um, one of the most aspects to me, the underrated story, is Operation Warp Speed, where we basically literally got a vaccine in record time. But it's not just a vaccine. We've got, again, okay, we've got the monocotin mono, with the, the antibodies, and now you've got two antiviral agents available. And, and I have to be honest, I was in the pharmaceutical business 26 years. And I even promoted a product competitive to Tamiflu for the virus. And I have never seen anything like this where you literally have had so many options in a short period of time to treat this virus. And, some, and my biggest problem that I have right now is we're not using the full toolbox of all of this. Uh, you know. And it seems to me like, for example, one of the things that Desantis wanted to do or it you know, was doing and is still doing. But I don't see this in a lot of other states where he set up, you know, state areas where okay, if you got a breakthrough infection you can go over here and get the antibodies. And I guarantee you, you know, once the antivirals come out he'll be doing the same thing. Encouraging people, encouraging position, okay, you got option A. If people if option A doesn't work or people don't choose option A, let's go to option B to do so. And and, and, and when we come back from the break, my question would be, is it time to start even changing the strategy of how to treat this virus, not just be dependent on the vaccination side, but using all the tools in the toolbox? This is Tom Donaldson. We'll have Kevin answer that question here in the, the bastion News Radio Network and the Donaldson Files.
2: Confessions of a Potentially Perfect Parent, brought to you by AdoptUSKids.org. I might look like an adult, like... A person who could possibly be a parent, but I have no idea how to talk like one. And everyone knows that if you want to be a parent, you have to sound good when you say things like, Don't make me turn this car around! Or, because I said so. Or, don't make me come back there. I don't even really know what those things mean. But I know that I actually believed my parents when they said them to me. How did they manage to sound so convincing? Here we go. Don't make me come back there. No, that's not tough enough at all. Kids can sense weakness don't make me come back there. Ooh, yeah. That's better. In fact, that kind of sounded like my dad. Weird. You don't have to be perfect to be a
3: perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who would love to listen to you practice your dad voice.
1: Call 1-888-200-4005 or visit adoptuskids.org for more information. This message brought to you by the US Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt Us Kids and the Ad Council.
0: Now for no
3: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We, uh, you can listen to this show anytime, every day on the BachelorNews.AirTime.pro, uh, 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. every day, repeat of this particular show. Right, okay, Kevin, okay, I've made my kind of state, you know, kind of made this observation about, you know, the tools that we have. Is the time to kind of expand the use of the toolbox? To, and what's your thoughts?
4: well i i think there has been a lot of innovation and creative thinking about how to potentially have better treatments that's been brought to bear and i think they those have actually diffused extremely quickly out into um medical practice for the for the treatment of uh coronavirus disease and you know there are some of it's not just finding new therapeutics but uh other aspects like early on we were using uh ventilators very heavily with people ventilators are potentially um very damaging to people and were likely actually causing a number uh of deaths and so the medical community kind of recognized that and now you see much less um frequent use of uh, ventilators. And there are other uh, kinds of things. Um, People using um, remdesivir uh, as a potential way to lessen serious disease. You mentioned the monoclonal antibodies um, that are being used, and there are other therapeutics in development. I, I think it is inevitable that we are going to kind of move away from this focus on this as an epidemic into something that's more endemic. You know, it's just kind of always there and there's always some level of cases. If there's, if it's got seasonality, there may be more cases in the winter and, and less in the summer. And I think people will be very focused on, you know, how do you identify those cases early on and bring the the best treatments uh, to bear on keeping people um, from getting really serious illness and, and from dying. So, yeah, I think I am hopeful that, um, you know, we will end up in a position where uh, even though there are some ongoing um, cases, that there are new treatments. Uh, methods and therapeutics that mean the overall kind of toll that's exacted by the virus is actually not that great.
3: Yeah. Okay, Larry, did you have anything to answer to this?
0: No, I, I'm I'm just very I'm very distressed about this whole thing. I I, I just think it's. It's been mishandled by government right from the beginning, and um, and and I don't, I just don't see anybody learning from experience. That is in, is in charge. Well, I, I I take that back. I think you're right about some of the governors. Uh, the gov- and and that's a good sign. That I agree with that. That sign, sign in, uh, in in fact, that's sort of the way that. That this whole republic is supposed to work, we get all the experimentation going on in the states, and then it ends up uh being the best ones being uh adopted by the federal government uh It just would be nice if it wasn't if there wasn't so much uh uh anguish and uh and uh really uh hatred that's going on you know around it and i uh, and that all that is is a is a uh, is a complaint, and it's not a solution and I recognize that and therefore I'm not going to say much more
4: <laughs> yeah i I agree with you it's very unfortunate it, this epidemic couldn't have happened at all this time, kind of right in the middle of a presidential election in a highly polarized country. it was unfortunately almost inevitable that the response to and the handling of the response to the epidemic would also become highly politicized, that people would dig in their heels on issues instead of trying to understand what does the data and the research really tell us. Um, and it's very unfortunate, and I also unfortunately agree with you that I wouldn't be terribly sanguine that we'll learn the right lessons from how this epidemic got handled the next time we're faced with one.
0: We don't seem to have learned a whole lot. I mean, if, yeah.
4: <laughs> if, you know, one
0: of the one of the things I keep thinking about is in in eight, nine, uh, 1918 and 1919 you know they, they did, the government didn't do anything basically and here they they had this terrible uh onslaught of uh influenza and a lot of people uh, were sick and more and a lot of people died and yet they got over it and by 1920 they were all pretty much uh, back to back to normal and and they just sort of uh, carried on, and yet, you know, we made such a huge uh, uh, case out of this thing before before we even got there that uh, yeah. uh, we just didn't learn anything. So I hope we hope we hope we learn something about it for the next time around.
4: Yeah, you would you would certainly hope that.
3: Yeah. yeah well yeah I think it I mean yeah because I mean I'm looking at this and you know and to me, the one thing that when I look at all the different mistakes that have been made, I would say that the first mistake we made is we overestimated the lethality of the virus, and once we got a pretty good handle of you know how the virus was, you know that it is you know how the virus was, and uh um, yeah and and I just think, to me, that was the to the, the key element. And I and I would say to this say, how much of there's a part of me that says, how much of this was government experimentation? You know, if we can get away with this on this, can we do it for another emergency down the road? You know, is that being paranoid on my part, or is there something to that?
4: Well, you you the most obvious analogy is the concern over uh climate change and you you see people regularly say, Hey, you know, look at what we were able to do to the public in the name of um trying to control the epidemic, you know, climate change is an even more serious problem, you know. We we should declare an emergency and do whatever we we think we need to do with that, uh, so I think there are definitely people who are thinking along those lines on the other hand i don't I, I do think that the majority of the public it really has had enough of this, and um they are unlikely to want a repeat in the name of some other issue uh so i you know i I'm sure there are people who will uh, think the model's been set for how you can force the public to accept all kinds of restrictions. Uh, but I'm not sure that the public is going to be uh, very receptive to that. Yeah.
3: Well, I would say to me, the, the biggest problem, I, the other aspect, I you, we've talked about this on the show before, is the credibility of science itself is being threatened by this yeah you know, i've always figured that Tony fauci has done more damage to the credibility of science than any anti factor could ever do and
4: yeah i and, yeah, i think that's absolutely true i i um yeah you know it's uh, uh, science has obviously fallen through a lot of different groups the um government employed public health experts ha really have been uh, i mean just done a dreadful job of providing advice, but uh, and I don't mean to to be as demeaning as it sounds, but there's a reason why people end up in government, and it's not usually because they're the best and the brightest, whether it's at the substance of their field or at, you know, making decisions. And, you know, Fauci and the people at the CDC are sterling examples of um, people who probably couldn't cut it in any other setting they couldn't cut it in industry um and so they end up in government and that's yeah. what we do yeah. yeah i kind of you,
3: if you ever saw the original men in black there's this one scene where the you know the the leader of that group you know brings in all these uh military you know, all these people government tied military side and and basically he said well you guys are the best of mental uh government brings and he, and it was rather sarcastic. <laughs> he was being, you know, cuz they they were being, you know, so much sarcastic, but uh it kind of and I look at Tony Foschi in the same way when I think of that. You know, you know, he's the best the money can, you know, he's the best the government can produce. But yeah, I mean, but I think
0: but you, I think that I think that's, that's that's where it went it went astray. And I think that um my my interpretation of that is that that uh uh trump was a, a ceo of a very very large complicated uh, business and he uh, knew that he couldn't know everything so he did what any uh ceo would normally do when he comes across something that he doesn't know anything about he goes and he looks for the best uh advice he can find and everybody told him that uh that uh, Tony Fauci and that that crowd, uh, there were there were there were more than just him, but he was kind of the leader. But yeah. uh, they they were the ones that were recommended, so he put uh, them under the vice president, and off they went. And they, what he did not understand was that their perspective in public health is always very very targeted. I mean it's what their only real criterion is what is the best for all the people that you're talking about in this case it was the entire nation in fact the entire world and so when they made these drastic uh recommendations of cutting closing down the entire american economy uh and he 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 didn't realize that that these people are very biased, and and that you know they've always been taught that way, and that's the way they've always operated. Because for one thing, they've always had a tremendous amount of opposition, and uh, so it really I think it started that way. And it took it took uh, it took uh, Trump only about two weeks after that after he declared the. Uh, the uh, lockdown that he realized that he was wrong, but he didn't, he, he couldn't retire. He was stuck. And that's, that, that's my interpretation. And I I know, yeah. I know these public health people pretty well because I, I did a lot of work with them for a lot
4: of years.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah.
4: yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Kevin. No, well, I was just going to say, I, I, I think, um, you know i think they're they tend to be excess excessively risk averse they tend to not be aware of perspectives other than the public health perspective exactly. uh exactly. and um and i i think they are prone as are many politicians to herd mentality and we definitely saw that i mean a hilarious thing is um not hilarious in actuality but you know, China, which is where this came from, people emulated their response. Well, China's a totalitarian dictatorship. You know, they literally were welding people into their homes. Um, and not sure that's the model that we should have been following for a response to the epidemic.
0: Yeah. Not Well, we shouldn't have been. I mean... If, if you re- if you really wanted to listen to those guys, you should have also had other people. Like, why in the hell they didn't get Ben Carson involved in this? You know, there there is a guy with who is a practitioner. He's an MD. He's a, certainly a, a, a internationally uh, respected uh, surgeon, and he he would uh, he uh, he did actually understand exactly the the problem that that uh, was happening and yet he he was kept aside from it uh, because of politics i guess uh yeah. well but, here's a yeah uh, i'm going to follow up here because we don't have a lot of
3: time left. but uh, i i I'm, I'm in the process of reading scott atlas's book and it's a fascinating book uh, which, i don't know if, uh, what's the name of it uh scott atlas uh his most recent book it is uh and he talks about his period of time as – because he was brought in to be kind of like the counter to Tony Fosche. And uh, and he talks about his experience with talking, you know, going into these meetings and saying – and he said and, – and it's kind of depressing because he basically said, I would sit there and make this presentation on schools. I have all this data, and it's like these guys never even read the literature. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's and it's the kind of a tragic there and, and it goes back to the point, you know that you know we kind of talked about you know we've been talking about, is you know where do we go from here? Because I'm hoping that Kevin, you're making the point that you know the politicians are getting an earful from the fact that people themselves are tired of this mm-hmm. nonsense. But my concern would be is you still have people who view. The lockdowns, the pandemic, the economic restrictions, as great successes, and they're making that case. Certainly, Debbie Burks has been making that case in congressional hearings. Oh, we were successful in what we did. You know, Andy Slavin, who you, who you criticize and whose book you've reviewed, you know, has been on the same kick. And I'm going to let you yeah. kind of, you know, give you a couple of minutes to kind of, you know, talk about those points as well. You know
4: yeah i mean i I think there are and remain a group of people who are convinced that um we should have been even more restrictive and who think that the actions that we took made a difference and I frankly find that laughable because anybody who looks at the epidemic curves from various states and locations will see that. Those restrictions didn't and haven't made any difference. The vaccines um, have uh, had an impact um, and and you can see that in the in the shape of the curves, but the other stuff and the research um, you know generally uh, does not support the notion that any of these restrictions that were used uh, made any significant um, impact on transmission. So but again, whether or not people will learn that lesson, you know, what we did this time was unprecedented and it may be that people will in the future, uh, either will say, Well, we should never do that again, or some people may say, Well, it worked great, we let's let's do the same thing again. Yeah.
3: Well I, yeah. Yeah, That's a good point, because, because I know that, first of all, I'm going to have you uh, once again talk about your website, how people can get to your website, Healthy Skeptic.
4: Yeah, they can find it at www.healthy-skeptic.com. Yeah, I, I guess I am. Like I said, I want to
3: thank you very much for being on the show, uh, taking your time, Kevin. Uh, you're, you're, like I say, uh, I I would recommend anybody listening to the show, let, read his website every day. If you want the best information on the coronavirus, because, see, every, I mean, it seems like you have all kinds of data. Uh, you have a gentleman who works with you on the data, and, and you always have four or five updated studies that are there. And I think that people – and, and 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 you're one of the very few people, in my view, Kevin, who got this virus right for the past 18 months. Where I can sit back, look at your timeline, say, you know, if it's, if you he you were one of the few who got this virus right from almost the beginning, and I thank you for your work. This is Tom Donaldson saying, uh, thank you, Kevin. And thank this you, is Tom Donaldson saying, uh, saying good night and have a good evening. Yes, I do, and uh, like I say, um, hopefully uh, the Swamp Girl is supposed to join us. I just sent her, in fact, I just sent her a note saying, "Come on in, come on." <laughs> uh, but all right, here's the thing I'm going to talk about. Uh, we're going to start off with Wisconsin, and we're going to also start off with you know some of the stories in Georgia. I think there's some significance on both of these things, and uh, let me start first of all uh, with. Wisconsin and the written house case. Because, you know, I had a chance to be on another show last night with a couple of gentlemen, very smart guys in the law enforcement, but they're, you know, they took it from the left side of the equation. And they kept making the same, po- several points, the same points, which, and the first point that they made, and this is going to be the monologue where I come in, is the blame is the fact that Rittenhouse was there was the reason why everything happened. He essentially got the blame for this. And my view is that number one, he had better reasons to be there than the three men he shot. And there's also a fourth guy he did get shot who was also involved in attacking Rittenhouse. To me the real question is is not is not what Rittenhouse did, but what those three men did to begin with. One man tried to steal the gun and got shot. Another man hit Rittenhouse with a skateboard and tried to beat him with the skateboard. He got shot. A third guy kicked him in the face, but he seemed to escape. And the fourth guy, after he raised his hand, after he raised his hand, in which, which, uh, you know, in which he was let go. Um, he basically, uh, he basically pulled a gun on on Rittenhouse. In which case, at that point, uh, at that point, uh, you know, you I would do? say, man, you pull it. What do you do? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing: you let the guy go, and then he pulls a gun on you, and he advances towards you. At that point, that's self-defense. The entire premise, uh, the entire premise, comes down to this: these three men put themselves in the position. They started a fight, or as somebody you know, as somebody once observed, "Don't bring a skateboard to a gunfight." And he defended himself. They should be the one held responsible for their own activity and the results in the faith that they suffered. Uh, that's number one. Number two, the governor himself should be held responsible, along with the city official. They didn't protect the city. Uh, they did not protect the city. So why, you know. And not only that, but immediately after the case, Tony Evers, the governor, basically made some comments that added fuel to the fire, you know, dealing with the Jacob Blake all but blaming the cops. Even though, again, a more prudent governor would say, let's see what the evidence is first. He did not. And this added fuel to the fire. He did not have the National Guards in there immediately. The police were overwhelmed. And when he did put the National Guard, it was like 125 soldiers at a time for a city is 100,000 people. He left the city defenseless. And it's in that defense that you sit back and you say to yourself, uh, you say to yourself, when does the governor take responsibility for his lack of activity? And the, you know, he should be held responsible. He was not. And I think people should hold him responsible when it comes to the to the election and
0: uh well you think he's going to be (laughs) re-elected
3: i don't know It's it's a very good case it's a very good case uh yeah it's a very good case i don't know whether or not he will or will not but uh Uh, It's going to be interesting, but to me, this is the aspect. But there are several things, okay, there are several things that we need to talk about. And and the other aspect is if you're not going to defend the city, this is the result that you get. Uh, This is the result that you get. If you don't defend the city, so, uh, I mean, if you don't want, if you do not want uh, vigilante, if you don't want people like Rittenhouse out there defending their community, which is what they were doing, defending those cities, you better start defending the police. They're that, you know, fine, thin, blue line that comes into play. I also think, quite frankly, today's Georgia case is a very fasc- fascinating case, because, quite frankly, uh, uh, you know, you know, again, you know, the jury, basically, in my view, got the right decision in this case. Uh, I think it'd be hard for us to see any, you know, in this case, and it demonstrated, quite frankly, uh, maybe we're not the racist society everybody thinks we are, because a black man who was murdered by three white guys. The three white guys got
0: convicted. Uh, uh, one of the things that nobody mentioned in this whole in this whole case that I heard uh, is that the victim was was not black; he was white.
3: Uh, which uh, case it's, are you talking?
0: It's I'm talking the Wisconsin about, uh, case. Huh? Yeah.
3: The which, yeah, the I mean, Yeah, it, they were all three white. I mean, that was the other aspect. I
0: so I mean, i be aspect? racial
3: yeah no it's not just that, but here's the question that comes into place this you had three white guys rioting in the name of social justice, and they were destroying a good portion of the black community I mean a good portion of the black community in Indonesia got destroyed, and we act like i mean and this and people should you know and people should understand that so and uh i, I and I, I just want to kind of leave that there because, you know, the, to me, the issue is, is, I mean, this, again, it's one of those issues where this should have been self-evident that this was self-defense. That this was self-defense. But, and maybe, and the other aspect that comes into play here is, yeah, the other aspect that comes into play here is, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take a quick break here. Uh, This is Tom Donaldson, Donaldson Files, on the Bachelor News Radio Network.
1: Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. At 6 a.m. I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. At 6 a.m. I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m. I shower.
3: Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m., I shower. I start laundry at 8. At 10, we go for a walk. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. For those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit AARP.org slash caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council.
1: You might know me on 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedinamerica.org slash hunger. And find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council.
3: Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Tom, yeah, yeah, the Resistance Hour, and uh, uh, we, Pam, you're on the air, correct, Pam?
0: Yes, I'm here, Tom.
3: Okay. Finally,
0: yay!
3: Yes. (laughs) So, all right, okay, Larry, we, we got Pam on the show. Uh, she's already missed my brilliant, uh, my some of my brilliant observations. I'm not sure if I should repeat them, not just for her, or we can just continue with the show. What do you say? It's your show, the Resistance Hour, uh, Dr. Larry and Tom.
0: I think she'll catch up. Um, I, I'd like to, I'd like to make a comment on on that on your uh, on that yeah. topic. Um, it, it's, uh, it seems to me that. <clears throat> we're 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 in danger of uh taking this a little bit too uh seriously in in terms of some kind of um uh or some kinds of of uh, shift of people being um willing to uh, understand that that justice has in fact been served uh now that uh that this uh Boy has been exonerated of, uh, of murder uh, when he never should have even been uh, indicted, let alone uh, tried. Yeah. Uh, people seem to think. A lot, uh, I've been hearing a lot of a dis- lot of uh, discussion from uh, commentators that well, now we've proven that that the uh, First Amendment still exists. And that uh, right of self-defense, and even with a weapon, is still a uh, reasonable uh, thing to do to you. Uh, uh,